Welcome to SB&M is Here, the State Bar of New Mexico's official podcast. In this series, we'll discuss topics such as professional development, tools of the legal trade, and mental and professional well-being. Connecting the legal community across New Mexico, SB&M is here. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SB&M is Here. This is Morgan Pettit, Member Services Manager and Podcast Producer. I first want to say a big, big thank you to Sydney Hill at Second Judicial Court. In the first episode of this season, I put out the call to the judiciary to reach out to see if anyone wanted to be on the airwaves. And Sydney jumped at the chance and made this episode happen, as well as its companion episode with other judges. So Sydney, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for everything. And I greatly appreciate all that you do. I also want to say a big thank you to John Zaman. John, if I mispronounce your last name, please forgive me. Uh, but he leads the NMCDLA. He was instrumental in getting these episodes produced, and I could not be more thankful to have had his partnership throughout this. And one big final thank you to the judges who participated in this episode and again in the companion episode. I know your time is precious, and I am very thankful that you were able to hop on and share your thoughts with the State Bar membership. Now on to the content. This episode is one of two that is sort of like a meet and greet, if you will, for some of the new second judicial criminal court judges that were sworn in in early 2021. Chris Dodd of Freeman Boyd was gracious enough to interview Judge Fox and Judge Baca Miller. So I'll hand it over to him and enjoy. Thanks, Morgan. Um, so uh, first up, we're going to speak with Judge Bruce Fox of the Second Judicial District Court. Um, good afternoon, uh, Judge Fox, how are you? Good afternoon. I'm doing well, thanks. And Judge Fox, I just wanted to start out by asking you a little bit about yourself, uh, what your background is, and how you ended up in New Mexico. All right, thanks. I am a transplant, uh, but uh, it was many years ago. I uh, went to college, grew up, went to college, to law school uh, in Connecticut and Massachusetts, um, but then uh, moved out to New Mexico in 1990. Um, and I've been there, been here ever since. Um, and I uh, moved out first to the Navajo Nation. I got a job at, uh, it's called DNA Legal Services. It's a legal aid office in Winderock. Um, and have been doing some, uh, started with legal aid work and then uh, worked at the uh, State Public Defender Office uh, at the Second Judicial District. Uh, that's where I got a lot of my criminal background. Um, more recently, I was uh, the chief judge out at the Pueblo of Laguna. I, I did that for eight years. And then uh, this opportunity came up. I've been on the bench as a second judicial district court judge since February of this year. How are, how are you liking it so far? Great. Fast-paced, uh, exciting work, um, really uh, good uh, good uh, colleagues to work with. Um, very challenging for uh, doing all this during COVID, uh, doing all I our imagine. hearings on Zoom, but other than that, it's, it's really good work. I'm sure that's been a, a, a heck of an experience, just jumping right in during COVID. Yeah, so I was in Laguna and we, we had to do the same thing, you know, so I, you know, we're all kind of getting used to the technology. Um, uh, so looking your best on screen. Right, right. Um, so um, I wanted to ask you, what do you think has been your greatest accomplishment in your legal career? <laughs> this is it. <laughs> I, I really do. I, I'm really excited to be a, a second judicial district court judge. And, and honestly, this is my plan is to finish out my law career as a, a second judicial district court judge. That That is, uh, I really enjoy the trial level work. I have no intent uh, intention of moving anywhere else uh, to court of appeals or otherwise. Uh, so I, I was I'm really excited to uh, be in this position right now at this point in my career. Awesome, awesome. And how about in your personal life? What do you think your greatest accomplishment is? Uh, finding the love of my life and 
<laughs> marrying her. Uh, I did marry when I moved out to New Mexico. I met my wife about ten years later, and then uh, she's she's actually from northern New Mexico, and uh, we've been together ever since. I think we're just got got uh, had our eighteenth wedding anniversary, so it's wow. been it's been a good ride in New Mexico. Congratulations! Thank you. Um, so actually, how so? How did you end up in New Mexico? Did you specifically choose New Mexico? Yes, uh, coincidentally, my um, brother happened to be here uh, when I got out of law school in 1989. There was kind of a small recession going on. It was pretty challenging for as a new lawyer to find find a job. Uh, my brother had been out in New Mexico. Uh, he was actually taking some graduate classes at UNM with his wife and said, why don't you come out? It's great out here. I'd come out a couple of years earlier for his wedding. I really uh, liked the, um, just like the feel, uh, open space, not as much traffic. And so I took the opportunity, uh, moved out here and just loved it. Uh, lived here ever, ever since and no, no looking back. Got hooked awesome. on chili, got hooked on uh, everything New Mexico. Awesome. Well, as, as a transplant myself, same thing, same thing. Um, came out here, visited a couple of times, and I was like, I, if I got to choose anywhere, that's where it's going to be. So I understand that. Um, so now, uh, why don't we shift uh, over to Judge Britt Baca-Miller and... Um, that way we can kind of go back and forth between the two of you. Um, Judge Baca-Miller, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background? Well, I was, unlike the both of you, I was born and raised in Albuquerque where obviously I still practice. Uh, I went, I decided to go to the lovely city of Portales, the international hub of New Mexico, uh, to Eastern New Mexico University for undergraduate, where I graduated in 2003 with a degree in communication. Uh, at that point, I decided that I wanted to go to graduate school, so I moved to Portland, Oregon and got my master's in public administration. And then I came back to Albuquerque because as much as I loved Portland, I knew that Albuquerque needed a lot of help. At the time, I was working with a lot of individuals who had drug and alcohol issues and mental health issues, and I knew that the best way to help my community was to come back to Albuquerque, and I worked for a few years in nonprofits, and then I went to law school and graduated in 2013, and then I worked for the public defender's office for about seven and a half years. And then I was appointed to my current ju judgeship where I'm working today. As and you, you can also, see my flowers behind me. And you also took the bench in February, is that right, of this year? Yes, yes. We were appointed in January of 2021, and um, we took over the court on February 8th, I believe. I like the sound of that. Well, we're almost, we're almost half the bench with the new judges. So it's kind of taking over. New sheriff in town, so to speak. Right, right. Um, and so, uh, Judge Bacamiller, I want to ask you uh, the same question that I asked Judge Fox. Um, what has been your greatest accomplishment in your legal career? Now, while being a, appointed to a judgeship is certainly the, the largest accomplishment with the greatest prestige, I think everyone would say that. So I decided to go a different direction when I thought about this. And Probably about four or five years ago, um, I had represented a client who had a long criminal history from juvenile all the way to adulthood, and he was facing a significant amount of time in prison. I received jail calls from the prosecutor, and it showed an evolution from him referring to me as his public pretender all the way to calling me his attorney and talking to his family about talking to his attorney. And so I think that was a huge accomplishment to gain the respect of somebody who had a lifetime in the system from just being considered a public defender or so-called public pretender to being somebody's attorney. So I think that would be my greatest professional accomplishment. Um, and my, my greatest personal accomplishment would be married almost 10 years and getting through the 
pandemic while both working at home for about nine months. Maybe that's why I applied to be a judge, I don't know, but I think that that's um, a pretty big personal accomplishment for all of us who have survived this pandemic. I definitely agree. So Judge Bacamiller, I'll let you take the, the next question first. Um, what injustices have you witnessed in or outside the courtroom and what was your response to those events? And this question, I, I didn't really know how to answer. I think that it's, um, it's difficult to work in, in the judicial system and say that there is some type of injustice. But I will say that um, several years ago, I had a case where the wrong person was charged. That person was uh, taken to a grand jury indictment. He was charged with um, aggravated battery. And that client had serious mental health issues, um, was later hospitalized for those mental health issues, and was accessing programs for mental health issues. Uh, there was somewhat of a mix up when police were called as far as who they needed to charge. Um, there was a civilian witness who had seen this event transpire where um, my client was at, um, at a store in Albuquerque and had gotten into um, somewhat of a scuffle with somebody who had worked at that, uh, at that store and was charged with uh, threatening that person. However, the witnesses had said there were no we weapons that my client had, there was no threat for my client. And there was a civilian witness who was actually related to somebody who had some status in Albuquerque. Um, and I think it would have played well to a judge or to a jury to say, um, the civilian witness saw the entire thing transpire. He has no skin in the game. Um, but there's no way that my client had committed the charge or committed what he was charged with. Um, and the defense attorney had, or the prosecutor had listened to all of this evidence against my client and actually against the civilian witness who was charged or who was the alleged victim and decided to dismiss the case because there wasn't enough evidence against my client. Obviously, there's no space in the justice system or the criminal justice system for an apology or something saying, I was charged with this, but I didn't do it other than uh, providing a, a nulli prosecchi order uh, from the district attorney. But I think that that's one of the big injustices is that there's not that personal touch of being able to say I was improperly charged and here's, here's my apology from the state. Um, but that was something that I had seen. I think that was one of the more disturbing cases that I had as a defense attorney. Thank you. Um, Judge Fox, um, what injustices have you witnessed in or outside of the courtroom? And what was your response uh, to those events? I, I, you know, I couldn't think of a, a, a situation of somebody who's you know, based actual innocence who was convicted. I haven't come across personally that kind of thing. I, I you know, we, I think uh, regularly, I try to keep an open mind and, and try to uh, assist people who need it in, in regards to how they're in the criminal justice system. Uh, for example, if somebody, um, you know, the time a crime was committed is, is, uh, and you get to trial is a year or more later and they're now eight month, months pregnant, you, you know, you try to accommodate and, and uh, or if somebody has an illness or something that comes out at the time of sentencing, um, it's, it's a matter of responding and, and really trying to keep an open mind and, and trying to accommodate uh, the people in front of you, uh, not, not looking at things as black and white of saying, well, you're convicted of this offense, so you have to do this much jail time. It's, it's pretty regularly uh, it, I try to uh, look and, and see and, and uh, try to make sure that uh, you know, basically our, our justice system doesn't just ruin people's lives. Awesome, awesome, yeah. Um, it seems like so much of, of being a judge is, is really looking at the nuances of each case. Exactly, exactly. 
All right, um, Judge Fox, you'll be first up on the next question. Um, do you believe that judges have an obligation to improve public understanding of the courts? And if so, how should they carry out that obligation? Uh, first, yes, I, I look at judges as public officials and they, uh, they should be answerable to the public and respond to the public, you know, within our, within our guidelines. Uh, but um, I, I think it's, it's great that, uh, the, for example, the newspaper, um, that, that there are judges who regularly submit articles. Um, I, I think it's, uh, it's really a great idea for judges um, to participate in any kind of public forum, forums that they're invited to. Uh, you know, we have our restrictions about, uh, you know, political restrictions and, you know, we can't comment on specific cases and that sometimes comes up when uh, you get into the public eye. But I, but I strongly believe that we should get out there and talk to people. Um, it's it's we don't we don't have to talk about specific cases, but we can certainly explain some of the challenges we have, uh, our judicial philosophy. Um, uh, so yes, I, I believe it's it's essential, it's important, and I'm looking forward to it. And Judge Baca Miller, um, do you, do you believe that judges have an obligation to improve public understanding of the courts? And if so, how should they carry out those obligations? I agree with Judge Fox. I think that um, as public officials, I think that we do have an obligation to um, remain open and I think to remain transparent within within limits as far as the judicial standards that we have to abide by. But I think that it's important to um, remain open. I think that something that I've had a hard time adjusting to is um, that feeling that we're more on a pedestal or that we're not accessible in the same way. Um, where you know we have to go through several locked doors <laughs> to our chambers and there's no more um, talking to attorneys in the same type of way. And I, I think that, um, especially as far as the public goes, um, I think that we do have an obligation to keep an open door, so to speak, so that we're not seen as the public officials that you can't talk to. I think that can be a slippery slope where if someone feels really deeply about um, a certain type of crime or a certain defendant, then I think that keeping an open door or keeping um, access to the public open could lead to an uneven justice system. But I also would like to change the image of judges from being on a high horse or being um, cold and um, removed from society to being more approachable. It seems like it can be tricky with the uh, code of judicial conduct and the interplay of the code of judicial conduct, but also provide, trying to provide the right amount of transparency. Um, and that's, that's definitely true. I, I don't envy you. Um, that's, that's certainly something that I would struggle with if I were a judge. Um, so Judge Bacamiller, um, the Albuquerque Journal has described the criminal justice system as a three-legged stool. Uh, yet often it seems that the media coverage of the courts uh, can exclude one or two of those legs. Do you support the courts having a more active role in educating the public for the reasons behind its decisions? I think this, again, is a difficult question to answer because of the judicial standards that we have to abide by in the ethical rules. Um, I think that I'm going to fall back on um, comments that I had made to the media as a defense attorney where you have to think of whether this would hurt your client. And I think that likewise, as far as our communication with the public through the media or through, um, through our public information officer is trying to figure out how to communicate what we're doing to the public without actually making any comments on cases or um, making a three-legged stool even more uneven or making it uneven by
being like a two and a half legged stool, if we're making some type of comment that could be construed as pro state or pro defendant. And so I think that um, it's important to educate the public, but I, I think that we have to rely on our public information officers and on personnel from the court to um, provide as much information as we can without compromising our integrity and our fairness. And Judge Fox, um, do you support the courts having a more active role in educating the public for the reasons behind its decisions? Um, yeah, I think we could just do the best we can. I, I think that the, actually the best way to explain yourself to the public is through uh, your written decisions. Uh, now, the, the, down, the problem with that is that um, we're in such a fast-paced society that uh, you know, you have a hearing at, at one in the afternoon and they, they want to know, uh, they want a response by five that afternoon of why, why the judge do that. And you're not going to get a de written decision filed and available to the public for a minimum a day or two, sometimes even a week or more. Uh, and so, but, but um, yeah, in a perfect world, we could speed that up. I think that's the the best way, so you, you don't have a back and forth about, well, why didn't you do this or that, or uh, what's the reason? Um, that's usually the most effective. Um, I, th I think we just keep working in that direction, is, is trying to get uh, written decisions uh, available. And, um, and uh, just what we're doing is working through um, a, a basically the, uh, our media consultant or the person in the building to, uh, make sure they uh, do what they can to communicate what they can. I think it's it's really good to have an, a a line of communication to the judges, but but you know through the restrictions that are you know the judicial ethics restrictions that are in place. Absolutely. Um, so, Judge Fox, um, you practiced law for many years. You were a judge. Um, for the Pueblo of Laguna. Um, did you find, and do you believe that pretrial interviews provide an opportunity to obtain a just and efficient result for all parties? Absolutely. Um, I've uh, always, well, as a judge, I've always you know, made sure um, that tracked it so that the pretrial interviews are taking place in a timely man manner as, as a practicing attorney. Um, there's nothing, uh, it's really helpful. Um, it, it's basically a more relaxed atmosphere than the court setting. Uh, so witnesses, victims can um, very often open up a little bit more. Um, it's really essential to uh, for criminal defendants um, to understand what they're facing if they decide to take a case to trial or decide should I accept the offer of the state. Uh, you know, the whole point of a uh, pretrial interview the, you know, it's basically the basic question, if this goes to trial, what are you going to say? You know, it's just getting that information in advance and being able to have criminal defendants and victims understand who's going to say what, and you know, the, then you can start assessing uh, whether uh, the state can prove its case and where to go from there. But yes, I think it's essential um, and a very important part of the process. And uh, Judge Baca-Miller, um, you practiced law um, at the Public Defenders for many years. Did you find that pretrial interviews provided an opportunity to obtain a just and efficient result for all parties? Well, as you know, um, we are starting up grand jury proceedings again in the second uh, judicial district. And I think that preliminary hearings provided an opportunity, opportunity for defense attorneys and also the state attorneys uh, who worked for the prosecutor's office to um, further flesh out what the statements of the witnesses were uh, or the alleged victims to get a broader picture of what, what was going on when the police were called. Um, I oftentimes would refer to police investigations as a game of telephone where someone would tell somebody something who would tell some 
someone else who would then tell someone else. And I think that when you're on a time um, crunch, like police officers often are, you end up with a story that isn't fleshed out or that it's just one person's um, version and one person's um, image of what actually occurred that night. I think now that we're um, gearing toward grand jury proceedings in more serious cases where more witnesses are going to say more things and different things, it's really important to have pretrial interviews so that a more clear story from all witnesses with their biases, with uh, their points of view can be flushed out to provide a just and efficient result for all parties, not just the defendant, but also for the witnesses and for the victims. A lot of times the pretrial interview interview process helps get rid of cases that either shouldn't be going to trial because it's not going to turn out well for the defendant or shouldn't be going to trial because there isn't a case there. Um, and so it helps with the uh, sort of winnowing down. Is, is that what you're trying to say? Yes, I, I think that especially... Um for prosecutors who get handed a case where an officer um, sees things from a certain lens where, you know, did this crime occur on probable cause? But then when you talk to witnesses, you see that, uh, for instance, on a domestic violence call, maybe there are further um, reasons why this um, victim is making these statements, or maybe um, this was, further tainted by substance use. I was trying to think of how to say that in a clearer way, but I think that um, officers have a different role and have a different lens that they see these occur. And I think when you get to trial or we, when you get to the actual court system, sometimes they aren't, sometimes things aren't what they seemed at that time of incident. Um, Judge Baca-Miller, uh, what are your views on whether the court deals effectively with racial and gender biases? Well, I think that um, I look at something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had said, which was, when will the Supreme Court uh, have enough women on the, on the bench? And she said, when there are nine. And I, I think that's the same way that I look at district court. I think we have a significant number of uh, women judges and we have a significant number of Hispanic judges. Uh, however, considering the makeup of our state, I don't think that we will have adequate representation until we can say that all of the judges are minorities or all of the judges are women um, and that we're recruiting um, minorities to be in those systems. And I also think that this can trickle down into who is rep or who's representing individuals in the community. And so I think that something that I certainly saw from the perspective of an attorney is that on both sides there, no offense to present company, but there are a significant number of uh, white male attorneys um, from out of state who are both representing individuals charged with crimes in Albuquerque and prosecuting said crimes. And I think that it's important to um, stay connected with the community and with the media um, as far as reporting how uh, racial injustices occur. Looking at what happened right after the pandemic started with a lot of the protests of um, George Floyd's killing and um, a lot of the other protests that occurred around uh, around the country, as well as in Albuquerque resulting in charges uh, against certain individuals. I think it's important to both look at this objectively, but also look at this from the perspective of those who are who are charged um, and who are angry at uh, injustices that have been occurring in the in the country. I think that. Um, we also have to look at ourselves and reflect on our sentencing practices uh, as far as um, 
when we're looking at African-American individuals, for instance, who may be charged uh, more often with battery upon a peace officer or who may be charged more often with um, with resisting charges and officers who um, may have their own biases depending on the neighborhood that they're working in and what type of charges would fly if they arrested someone there versus if they arrested somebody um, in the North Valley in certain neighborhoods there or in the Northeast Heights. And so I think it's important to um, actively look at your cases before the sentencing time or before arraignment and review the information that you have so that you can check yourself if you're actually being biased. Um, and I mean, everyone has those biases, but to look at whether it's actually affecting individuals, whether they're victims and you think, oh, they're not going to participate or because, because they're from this certain neighborhood, they should have expected this to happen versus um, those biases against defendants as well. And so I think uh, to quote Ice Cube, check yourself before you wreck yourself as far as these biases go. So actually, that's a you know that makes me think of um, you know whether do you know whether the courts are doing anything to track numbers like that um, to look at uh, racial inequities potentially in sentencing or something along those lines? I think I want to say that the um, administrative office of the courts is working on that, but I have I received so much information in the last three months. <laughs> I think that there's a project that's going on, but I cannot give you more information on that. Maybe Judge Fox can, if he has looked at these emails more clearly than I have. Yeah, I don't know about the actual court system. I, my thoughts uh, is that uh, the court's part of the system and uh, the result of our system is that we have a percentage of um, minority populations um, statewide, and there's a higher percentage when you look at the prison population uh, that that's skewed. So um, that's a problem, and the court's part of that system um, that uh, you have more people incarcerated, uh, minorities incarcerated, than may, and the percentage is higher than the percentage in the general population. Um, so yeah, that's that, that's something. Um, coincidentally, I was just talking about this briefly to Judge Brocker Miller this morning. About um, I think the, what the court can do is is really look hard at people's backgrounds, uh, get as much information about why they are in the position they are, and try to take that into account. Uh, you know, the, um, prior uh, upbringing, education. Uh, prior convictions. Um, you know, one of the one of the problems is that if somebody does have a prior felony conviction in particular, that really puts a label on them in society and it becomes very difficult to find uh, housing, jobs. Um, you, know, you, you have to balance it out. I mean, people have to be responsible for their actions, but I, I think that as judges, we, we should take into account who these people are. We, we shouldn't just be um, looking at it and, as um, saying it, uh, that's not our job, that we look at the individual case and the crime and we're gonna treat that person just like uh, anyone else who's charged with the same crime. Yeah, I, th I think we have to look into more about, uh, really be aware of the problems in our system and try to do what we can. Uh, not saying certain people should be convicted or everybody should be let out of jail. I'm just saying it's something that we should be aware of and we should take into account more of people's background and how they ended up in the circumstances that they're in. I think one of those, the um, complications too, Chris, is uh, just to go back to that, is that um, a lot of the data as far as racial and ethnicity background comes from self-identification, especially from MDC. So it's, I think that's something that the court is going to be challenged with is how to identify individuals when you have to um, rely on the jail, uh, both 
trying to use their own intuition to determine somebody's ethnic and um, racial background or just relying on um, self-disclosure and whether or not we're identifying someone who uh, would be of Native American or Indian heritage or um, Hispanic heritage where uh, we're in a state that's a minority majority state as well. And so I think that's something that we'll be challenging on um, reviewing um, the court's bias toward racial and ethnic minorities as well. Um, and so our, our next question is very similar, I think, um, but I'm going to ask it anyway, um, and I'll start with Judge Fox. Um, what are your views on the need for more diversity on the bench and the, the manner in which the court treats members of different races? Pretty much the um, same question, but... Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's part of it is the system is, is starting at... Uh, um, starting elementary school, making sure that uh, everyone in the community feels like being a judge is an option if they want to pursue it. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a lot to uh, ask for, um, but, that, but that is starting there, make sure educational opportunities are open for everyone, um, making sure that, um, you know, that, that it's improving our education system, our, you know, equity in, in this in society but that, that's what I, I think um, I think it, and also being aware that that it is an issue uh, but but that's really I um, it, it, you know you look at who who is going to law school who's graduating who wants to uh, pursue a career and can that can that be improved at that level um, who wants to prove who wants to be a judge and, and uh, making sure, trying to make sure that, you know, people feel like uh, the sky's the limit, basically. Um, you know, the, the whole problem with, uh, with uh, the racial issues, economic equity is, uh, you know, there's a lot of esteem issues, people feeling, well, this is my place in life, I'm not going to do any better, uh, because uh, that's how uh, society has designated me. And, and so, uh, I think it's over. It's very, you know, we all should try to overcome that. Uh, sure, recruiting recruiting judges, the judicial selection process is helpful, but I, but I think it's it's everybody helping, and again, going all the way back to our education system. And Judge Bach and Miller, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that there's a huge um, effect on. The community, when you see yourself reflected in your elected officials or people in power, and I, I think New Mexico still has a long way to go, even as progressive as we'd like to think uh, of Bernalillo County. And uh, one example in particular that I would consider for this is the appointment of Catherine Begay to Children's Court. And she's currently the only Native American District Court judge. And she's taking over a huge project in Children's Court dealing with the Indian and Child Welfare, Indian Child Welfare Act and uh, the disparities in um, on children, on Indian children in the child welfare system. And considering that she's the only Native American judge in the state, when this is a huge population that's being addressed, I, I think is something that we definitely have to work on. I think it's the same thing um, in different counties. I think that in district court in Bernalillo County, we have a significant number of uh, Latino judges, but we don't have that same um, population represented in different courts, including in Santa Fe and including on the eastern side of the state, where we uh, still have to work on um, adequate representation um, for you know the majority of the state, which um, is very different than a lot of other Latino populations, because in New Mexico, a lot of our Hispanic or Latino populations are people who have lived here uh, for generations, such as my family. So I think that's something that we still have to work on. All right, um, Judge Baca-Miller, um, one of the more progressive trends 
across the country is expanding behavioral and mental health treatment as an alternative to incarceration. Um, how do you feel about expanding the court's use of treatment programs and specialty courts? Well, prior to law school, and I kind of referenced this earlier as far as nonprofit work, I had worked for several years at Crossroads for Women and Maya's Place in Albuquerque, which were programs founded by a civil rights attorney, which were uh, to provide housing and treatment to women who were exiting the criminal justice system because uh, the attorney had seen the same women cycling in and out of jail without housing or treatment. Uh, I had also worked with parents who were involved in the child welfare system on removing barriers to accessing substance abuse treatment. And in New Mexico, we live in a state where a significant number of our citizens have the financial struggles, multi-generational trauma, and behavioral health and substance use issues often related to this multi-generational trauma and financial struggles. So I think that incarceration can exacerbate the trauma for a lot of individuals, uh, particularly those um, who are younger. And so you have a lot of violence that occurs behind bars. I think that's something that we don't necessarily think of or we don't address as judges, but that is something that we run the risk of um, exposing people to as violence and incarceration. And in my experience, treatment courts will address the participants' trauma symptoms with uh, cognitive behavioral treatment or different other types of treatment modalities, while also treating their potential for unlawful activities through sanctions or through um, other actions where you're treating the actual problem. Um, I was a former public defender liaison in the, and I'm now the current judge presiding over DWI court. So I've seen a lot of individuals with subsequent DWI offenses facing a significant amount of incarceration time. Um, and they have not reoffended because they complete a treatment program through the courts. Uh, one issue that I talk to people about as far as incarcer incarceration goes, is that for the most part in New Mexico and probably across the nation, we are not able to incarcerate our way out of a problem. Uh, for instance, for some of the violent offenses, you could be facing at most of, or at most three years incarceration, and then you're released to probation. If you don't offer some type of treatment or some type of plan before someone is released from custody or before they're out of your view, they're really likely to reoffend and they're likely to keep offending, um, especially if they're at a young age. And Judge Fox, um what are your thoughts? I am a, a very big proponent of treatment courts uh, or treatment pro programs, especially courts. Um, uh, while at the Pueblo of Laguna as the chief judge, I presided over their, what they call it, the healing to wellness court. And uh, while there, uh, we were actually designated one of uh, 10 mentor courts around the country. Um, so the the, they have an um, organization, I could throw out acronyms, but people probably wouldn't know <laughs> NADCP and NDCI. Uh, the NADCP is the National Association of Drug Court Professionals, and NDCI is their training arm. It's the National Drug Court Institute. Um, they, they designate uh, uh, either uh, usually a two or three year uh, rotation. They designate 10 courts from around the country to be a mentor court. And so Laguna became one of 10 mentor courts in the country for uh, when we did a rotation. It, you know, that, so I, I basically have pitched drug courts to anyone who will listen uh, and, and specialty courts. I mean, courts would come to Laguna uh, to observe our program and, and I, I would advocate uh, on all levels. I, I think they're, they're, it's an excellent alternative to the uh, typical probation prison system. Um, and uh, I give people an example of, uh, the, of the ripple effect of a clean, sober person. First, uh, uh, somebody with, with uh, addiction issues, how they can drag down so many people. But, uh, you know, the parents, grandparents, children, spouses, uh, employers, it's just... Uh, you, you end up with 20 or 30 people dragged down because of one addict. But if on the opposite, if you can get somebody sober, tax paying, having a job, supporting their family, 
being involved in their kid's life, helping uh, care for their you know, grandparents, uh, that, that the effects are just amazing. And so it's worth the investment. Um, aside from our, you know, the, uh, the uh, saying about uh, the drug courts cost $6 a day and incarceration costs $75 a day, you know, the, um, it, it is worth it. Um, they, they now have, they've been around, the specialty courts been around for so long enough so they can actually uh, demonstrate uh, the savings to society, um, direct financial savings by helping people. And, and what I just said is even more important now is the uh, community. So the amount of work when you think of jail guards and judges and prosecutors and public defenders, how much money we put into this system where uh, focusing on what somebody's needs are um, is such a, a better um, investment. So I'm, I'm all in. And, and Judge Fox, are you currently involved in any of the uh, oh, programs yeah. here? Yes, I'm actually on the Veterans Court. Or it's actually the Veterans Diversion Program. I, I shouldn't call it a Veterans Court. They, they really are focused on, on uh, assisting veterans. Um, they've been quiet for uh, about, the, and again, this is going back to all these new judges. Uh, it, we're not starting new. There has been a veteran court in the, or veteran diversion program in the second judicial district uh, court, but um, we are basically uh, have two new judges and uh, let's call it revitalizing and uh, really uh, focusing on identifying vets who need the help and, and uh, helping them through this program. So we'll be uh, really hopefully taking off with that in the next couple of months. Fantastic. I'm glad to hear it. The New Mexico Criminal Defense Lawyers Association is a leading voice for criminal justice reform. We fight for a fair and just criminal legal system in the courts, at the legislature, and in our communities every day. Make your voice heard by supporting our work today. Go to nmcdla.org to find out how. Now, this will actually lead into our next question. Um, Judge Fox, what do you see as the main obstacles to providing alternative sentences for nonviolent offenders? I, I think it's a combination of things. You know, you know, there is a fundamental pr principle about treating everybody equally in the court system. And, and I think there's a sense of, well, why should we do that person a favor? Um, um, there's this idea of society pressure. Um, there, there's a lot of, uh, especially now, with the, there's so much anger out there on all sorts of topics. And, you know, uh, you can overall, um, there's, a, there's a good portion of the population who's, who's, who, who believes you, you know, all the phrases, you do the, you do the crime, you do the time. Uh, we need to lock up more criminals. That's the problem with society. You know, it's, uh, there's a lot of pressure um, aside from this whole um, jail complex idea that was, has been built up in this country, but that, that's, that's what happens is that you commit a crime, we have, we have jails and prison out there, that's what they're for. Um, so it's, it's difficult. I, I think uh, it's a matter of really trying to um, keep options open, uh, focus on statistics, uh, uh, making, you know, about, uh, it's all about repeat offenders, you know, about the number of people who do a prison a prison sentence and end up back committing more crimes versus people who are given an opportunity to do something different and uh, whether they they get back on track. So I, I think the numbers are out there. It's a matter of uh, public publicizing it and, and and ultimately with the judges, it's really pushing on making making sure to do the right thing if there's an opportunity, um, especially for. Not, you know, the, uh, I should say, on the other hand, um, nonviolent, the, the phrase nonviolent offender is, is pretty tricky. Um, that gets tossed around a lot about, well, 
breaking into someone's car a nonviolent offense. And, well, you know, the victim doesn't feel that way. You um, know, it's thrown out there to the court. Well, they didn't hurt anyone. And, and it's a little tricky, but um, I, I believe it is all about um, looking what, what's best for the community. Um, do, you, do you need to incarcerate someone or, uh, or can you get them back on track? So, um, those those are I think the obstacles is really uh, is about the whole system we're working in. And actually, that, that raises a um, a follow up question that I want to ask you. Um, it sounds like you're somewhat of an expert on uh, alternative court systems and um, you know rehabilitation programs through the courts. Do you think that our um, specialty court programs in the sec second judicial district are properly funded? Do you think that we need more resources? Um, you know, I believe, there, I, I shouldn't say too much because I just started here and I haven't looked at the books, but I believe the resources are there. Um, I think it's, uh, we need to do a better job with um, getting buy-in from uh, public spenders and prosecutors and all the judges as well. Uh, but it's, um, it, you, there, there is kind of a line of thought that um, for the attorneys out there saying, well, you know, my job is to look at the uh, laws, the constitution and make sure justice is done. I'm here to handle an individual case. I'm not here to fix society problems. And it's a matter of, of really trying to convince the, all the participants in the justice system um, to uh, look at look, especially with individual defendants, saying, you know, what's the problem? What you know? How do you think you can fix this? Um, improve yourself, help the community. It's going a little bit beyond uh, just um, looking at the individual and whether elements of a crime have been proven and what a punishment should be. So I think it takes, I think the, the actual resources are there, but I, I think we, we still need to work on the referral process. We should really keep our alternative courts filled to a maximum. At that point, I think then we could say, well, we have people who are applying that there's not enough room for. And I don't think we're there yet. That makes sense, that makes sense. Uh, Judge Baca Miller, um, what do you see as the main obstacles to providing alternative sentences for nonviolent offenders or all offenders, as, as Judge Fox would say? I think um, the big literal obstacle is the habitual offender enhancement, um, which I think can really tie our hands on um, whether we are required to sentence someone to incarceration or whether uh, they could have that alternate alternative sentence. Um, particularly if the if we don't have buy-in from the prosecutors and the public defenders, um, and I I think that there was a bill that was in um, the legislature addressing um, judicial discretion on um, habitual offender enhancement, but that was not um, passed. I don't know if it made it out of committee, but I think that that's the biggest. Um, one of the biggest like literal obstacles to uh, alternative sentences for nonviolent offenders. Uh, I disagree with Judge Fox. I do think that there are some resources or that we don't have all of the resources for some of these program courts. Uh, I think particularly in New Mexico, we don't have all of the treatment uh, or all of the, re like the money for resources or even the, um, the programs to support some of the treatment. Um, and so I think that that's certainly another um, literal obstacle to providing alternative sentences is not having the treatment um, for nonviolent offenders or even violent offenders such as sex offenders or um, domestic violence offenders. Right, if you don't have the treatment providers, you can't provide the treatment. Yes, or like for sex offenders when there's only two treatment providers in the state, um, 
and maybe justice would be better served if they were treated versus uh, incarcerated for like that short period of time and released. And you only have two treatment providers who can uh, provide those services. Then I, I think that that's certainly an obstacle. And thanks for thanks for pointing that out, Judge Bachmiller. I was thinking of in the context of uh, like uh, treatment courts, like the you know the treatment court teams and that, but but. Uh, it's, it's definitely a problem about, in particular, inpatient treatment um, yeah. and for sex offenders, for drug addicts. It, it, there's a, you hate to see people um, saying they're waiting for a bed and started using again, for example. Uh, that there, overall, um, there, there, is, there is a lot of need out there. Yeah, yeah, no, one of the, one of the, probably as we were talking about earlier, the biggest injustices, that I've seen uh, in the courtroom was a judge who was basically stuck and forced to send someone to prison because there were no alternatives. Um, this judge wanted an alternative and wanted to provide treatment because uh, they felt that this person um, had a history that needed uh, treatment rather than incarceration, but ultimately there wasn't an option. And so that was the only thing that could be done was just to send someone to prison. Um, Judge Bachmiller, um, do you believe that the composition of juries adequately and fairly reflects society at large? Why or, or why not? And if not, what do you think we can do to change this? Now, I'm actually going to say yes to this answer. And I think for district court, the juries adequately and fairly reflect society because it's composed of individuals who aren't just registered to vote, but it comes from um, licensed drivers and in income tax filers. I didn't know the income tax, the people who had filed income tax, but I knew that it came from people who were licensed to drive. I was actually called for jury duty. I've been called twice. I was called when I was practicing and then um, they excused me from jury service. Um, or from that case, like I, I was I was a peremptory, or maybe I was a cause strike. Nonetheless, in uh, 2009, I was called for jury duty, and um, there was someone else who was on the um, on the jury panel for a pretty serious charge, and he said in his jury questionnaire that he could not be fair and impartial um, because, or he couldn't, he couldn't commit to the jury service because he had to remain close to home because, um, well, he didn't say why. So the attorneys asked him, well, um, why are you not able to fulfill your services? And he said, because he had a severe drug and alcohol problem and he could not be away from home for that significant amount of time. And I think that that's the individual that one would think would not comply with jury service as far as, you know, the stereotype of jurors being like old um, white women or old white men who are retired. Um, I've also seen a lot of jury panels where you have convicted felons who are no longer um, on probation or parole and so therefore eligible for jury service. And I've seen these jurors actually show up to district court. So I think we're doing a pretty good job of recruit, recruiting jurors, having um, jury service accessible to them and also being um, open to uh, whether or not they would be um, a fair and impartial juror. And Judge Fox, um, do you believe the composition of juries adequately and fairly reflects society at large? Why or why not? And if not, what can we do to change it? I uh, completely agree with Judge Paca Miller's response. <laughs> I don't know if I have that much to add. That that does uh, um, uh, that does. I, I think the juries now are pretty reflective of the society. And, and they, they have done a good job with that. Right. Um, and I just have uh, one last question, actually. Um, what are your views, Judge Fox, about the court's involvement in responding to prison overcrowding? Um, I, I mean, I think we have to respond. I mean, I, I can't, I don't think we should just be uh, oblivious or ignore it and say justice has already been served and 
if it's a problem, it's a problem for all of us. Uh, you know, I, th I think there's a, uh, a, I know that, in, for example, in California, they, they had a very serious issue um, with funding, uh, funding the prisons. And it just, if it gets to that point, you just have to be, the judges have to be part of the decision-making process. And if you need to, um, if if the numbers are more than the, if the prison is overcrowded, then we have to work with the uh, everyone involved, the prisons, prosecutors, public defenders, judges, uh, and look at at uh, prioritizing reducing them. We have to we have to you know we end up getting sued in federal court if it's an issue becomes. Uh, that unmanageable. So we should look at it. Um, we've spent a lot of time this afternoon talking about alternatives, uh, justice. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, specifically overcrowding is, is a big problem. Uh, how we all look at what justice is and how it can be served is something we should look at as well about you know how many people we send to prison and why. Uh, so I, I think it's, uh, I think it's something we do need to address. Um, might involve uh, legislative involvement as well. Uh, so um, I think we the courts can respond, but it should be a response as part of the, all the other all the other uh, participants. Thank you, Judge Fox. Um, Judge Barker Miller, um, what are your thoughts about the court's involvement in responding to prison overcrowding? I think this is somewhat of a sentencing thought too, and looking at, um, I guess, different theories of sentencing. And there are certain charges and certain situations where I can certainly understand why retribution would come into play over uh, for instance, rehabilitation. Uh, I had a family member who, uh, whose brother was killed in a DWI accident uh, where the driver was uh, high on methamphetamine before, well, and then it hit him when he was on his bike. And in that case, she was sentenced to the maximum of, um, of nine years for driving under the influence resulting in death. And when she was coming up on parole, when that defendant was coming up on parole, uh, my family members had contacted me, like, how, how can we find out when they're getting released? And I think that something that we can think of as far as sentencing goes and how to minimize who is getting sentenced to prison and therefore overcrowding the prison is thinking of how this would affect all parties in this um, in this proceeding. Is this something where having that person in the community would affect um, the victims in such a way that they would suffer their own trauma knowing that person is out in the community? Or is this something where we can look at uh, restorative justice in such a way um, to allow for rehabilitation for both the victims and for the defendants by having services provided to both or even just to one and therefore re repairing in the community. But also I think we have to look at um, how community is how the community is not served when prisons are overcrowded. I think that New Mexico has this shadow over our um, incarceration sy system based on the um, on the prison riots in the 70s and 80s, which resulted in a significant amount of death, both on uh, defendants or inmates and also um, officers who were at those prisons. And looking out my window, I, I'm looking at um, half the jail, half the old Metropolitan Det Detention Center that has been torn down um, because of overcrowding and that's why it closed. And so I think that uh, as far as looking at a growing prison population and the court's involvement in responding to, to the prison overcrowding is also kind of a theoretical thought process on why, why are we sentencing people to prison? Should we use it for all people as a punishment or should we use it sparingly um, as a punishment as well? Um, and I, I think that's something that all of us should struggle with, um, because as soon as we get comfortable with 
sentencing routinely or just thinking we're hitting this uh, nail, aka defendant, um, with with this certain hammer. I think that's when we move from being a criminal justice system to just an incarceration system. Right. Um, well, did either of you have anything that you'd like to add or any closing thoughts uh, before we wrap up? Yeah, so I can add some uh, some obscure trivia just in case there's a question period later. Uh, Judge uh, Baca Miller's mother, Marie, Judge Marie Baca, married my wife and I at the UNM Chapel. And Judge Fox's wife, Judge Dominguez, um, borrowed my car when I was 15 years old <laughs> to move from one part of town to the next. So, so I will well, always remember your wife for that one. It's a small world. <laughs> small Albuquerque. It, it is a small state, no question. Well, thank you both so, so much uh, for being here today and answering our questions. We really do appreciate it. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by the State Bar of New Mexico's Member Services Department, Second Judicial Court, and the New Mexico Criminal Defense Lawyers Association. All editing and sound mixing was done by Blue Sky eLearn. Intro music is by Kevin McLeod at Incomtech. The views of the presenters are that of their own and not endorsed by the State Bar of New Mexico. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.